0: Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 23, and as you're turning there, let me thank Reed Jones, our campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship, for preaching last Sunday. Thankful for his faithfulness in our church, to the gospel of grace, and on campus, and we're very thankful for other campus ministries represented here that are faithful to the gospel and the word of God at the university and on nearby campuses as well. Last week my wife and I were gone. We we're over in Greenville with our youngest son and his wife and two boys and we were able to celebrate uh, their baptism together and pray for God's uh, continued work uh, through his church in the Greenville area here and and beyond. We were grateful and thank you for that opportunity to be with our family last week. Luke chapter 23 Jesus has been Interviewed by Pilate, passed on to Herod, and now he has been passed back from Herod to Pilate. And we pick up in Luke 23 and verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, Nothing to deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were all urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this day by the ministry of your Holy Spirit and through the ministry of your inspired word that you would cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we would see set before us in Scripture a Savior who is a friend for sinners and that we would rest and rely upon him alone for our salvation. And that by your grace, walk with him, commune with him, and with one another in the hope of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the coronavirus, whether we like it or not, has become somewhat of a political hot potato The Democrats want to blame the Republicans and the Republicans want to blame the Democrats for the handling or the perceived mishandling of the pandemic. Each wants to blame the other and quickly pass the buck on to the other. No one wants to get caught holding this political hot potato on election day. Well, in a very real sense, Jesus has become a political hot potato here in our text this morning. For Pilate and Herod, he had become a political hot potato. Pilate heard the charges against him, found no guilt, and so when he learned that Herod was in that jurisdiction, passed him on to Herod. But Herod didn't want to hold on to him long, so he passes him back to Pilate. It's also interesting that these two men had become, uh, they were politically at odds with each other, but they became allies in their common desire to handle properly this situation. I mean, can you imagine for a moment Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump sitting down over lunch as friends trying to figure out how to commonly handle this situation in our country? That's sort of what's going on here. These men who were politically at odds became friends over this political hot potato. And where our text picks up this morning is... The potato has been passed, if you will. This desire to deal with Jesus has been passed from Herod now back to Pilate, and he's in Pilate's hands. But what we see from this trial is that the trial of Jesus demonstrates his absolute innocence. Jesus had been examined and cross-examined by both courts, the religious court and the political court. Pilate has affirmed three times now of Jesus' innocence. Back in verse 4, he said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But the Jewish people persisted and when Pilate heard Jesus was from Herod's region, he passed him on. Herod passes him back. And now a second time, he says to the religious leaders, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find In this man, any guilt of the charges against him. Neither did Herod. There's nothing in this man deserving death. So Pilate decided that he would beat Jesus to appease the crowds and to please the courts. But the people wanted nothing to do with it. They persisted and they kept shouting for Jesus' head. So a third time, Pilate affirms the innocence of Jesus in verse 22. Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Three times Pilate emphatically declares the innocence of Jesus. But why? Why is his innocence such a big deal? Why the emphasis? It's because there is a grander scheme behind this scene. There's something going on here that is driving all of this. You see, earlier Jesus had told His disciples back in chapter 9 and verse 22 that the Son of Man must suffer, that He will be handed over to the authorities, that He will be beaten and mocked and ridiculed and ultimately crucified on the cross. Just a few verses later, Luke records for us in verse 51 of chapter 9 that from that moment on, Jesus set His face like a flint towards the holy city. Towards Jerusalem, why? Because it was there that the Lamb of God would be offered up as a sacrifice for sinners. But why the innocents demanded? Remember what the Old Testament teaches us about sacrifices for sins? Think for a moment as the people were still in Egypt and they were about to leave and embark on the journey to the promised land through the waters safely. On the night of the Passover, they were told that their sacrifice, that lamb, must be what? Without blemish. Later, when the sacrificial system was established, all the animals offered were to be without blemish and without spot. They were to be holy. Why? Because our God is a holy God. And therefore, His holiness demands... Absolute, perfect sinlessness and a sacrifice that would be sinless as well. And so Isaiah declared years before what Pilate discovered on this night and this morning, that the lamb to be offered as a sacrifice for sin would be one who was without blemish. The New Testament teaches the same thing about Christ. It declares His innocence, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The holy, pure, perfect Lamb of God. Peter, in speaking of the forgiveness that we enjoy through the blood of Christ, speaks of him as a lamb without blemish or spot. And so the writer to Hebrews argues this way, if the Old Testament animal without spot or blemish could provide for a season forgiveness, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. This is why Jesus' innocence is such a big deal. This is why his innocence is an absolute necessity. For without his innocence, there is no sacrifice for sin, there is no hope for sinners, there is no salvation. And so the trial reminds us of this glorious truth. That the Son of God and Son of Man was without sin. A perfect, spotless Lamb of God offered for our sacrifice. And so the trial highlights the fact that Jesus is absolutely innocent. But it also highlights the fact that we are not. The trial of Jesus reveals our guilt. And our corruption. You know, there are a lot of sinful characters surrounding this scene. First, there's Pilate and Herod, who were cruel rulers in the Roman regime. History will attest to the fact of their cruelty, their corruption. They're willing to hand over, eventually, an innocent man to an angry mob in exchange for a felon. Both of these men knew Jesus was innocent. And yet they allowed the mob to do at will what they wanted to with this innocent man. Second, there were the religious leaders. They were just as corrupt. They were deliberately fabricating stories about Jesus, trying to arouse animosity among the people because they wanted nothing else than for this man to be killed as a criminal. And then there was a crowd. The crowd who days earlier, literally just days earlier, have been singing his praise at the triumphal entry, have been raising their voices, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now those voices, driven by a senseless, unreasonable, ruthless, hate-filled mob mentality, were crying out to crucify him. You know, sadly, we've seen in the news what a a mob mentality can do. We've seen that in in Portland and throughout other major cities in our country. It's the same group that have been singing the praises of Jesus who now are screaming with red faces and bulging veins and clenched, clenched fists. Crucify Him! Put this man to death. And then finally, there's Barabbas in our text. Barabbas was in prison. He was the, the people's choice. But he was a convicted felon, a known insurrectionist and murderer. And so, what we have surrounding this whole scene, surrounding the only innocent one in all of human history, is this murderous, motley crew. But it's more than that, it's a mirror. This motley crew is a mirror of the human condition. It is a mirror of our condition. Of Jew and Gentile alike standing before the innocent Son of God with clenched fists and hate-filled hearts. This is us. We sang earlier that 19th century spiritual most likely can composed by English by, by enslaved African Americans a, a song that has basically one question were you there were you there when they crucified my lord were you there when they crucified him oh sometimes it causes me to tremble 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 were you there when they crucified my Lord why would this question cause us to tremble because we know the answer the answer is yes we were there it was my spit that flew into his face it was my fists that pounded his innocent cheeks and plucked his beard from his face It was my sin that drove the nails into his hands, into his feet, that pressed that crown upon his head, embedding those thorns into his innocent brow. It was my sin. It was your sin. Stuart Townend was spot on when he wrote those words and how deep the Father's love. He was honest and he admits, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. Call out among the scoffers. My friends, this is what the Scriptures teach regarding universal sin. It was our sin, our sin that's revealed in our hearts. From the fall onward, God has had to turn His face against such vile guilt and sin in humanity. After the creation and then after the flood, just before the flood... God makes this assessment of the human heart. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were continuous and the Lord regretted that he had made man and his heart was grieved. Did you hear the divine assessment of my heart and your heart? Every inclination of the thoughts of our hearts were only evil all the time. Theologians refer to this as total depravity. It's not because of common grace that we are as bad as we could be. But all of our faculties, our thoughts, our words, our emotions, our volition are twisted and tainted by selfful sin. We've all become like one who is unclean, Isaiah wrote. And all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. It's the sinful nature that we inherited from from Adam. And so David is able to say in Psalm 51, From the moment of my conception, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying from the moment of my conception, I was sinful by nature. That's why none of us as parents ever had to take those sweet, little, not-so-innocent babies and teach them deliberately how to lie, cheat, or steal. It later just becomes natural to us. None of us needed lessons in pride or prejudice, in lust or lasciviousness. It all comes quite naturally to us because we have a sinful nature. That's why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, picking up that Divine Diagnosis of God in Genesis about our sinful hearts writes these words. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the ways of this world, following the prince of the power, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were by, listen, by nature, objects, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is God's universal indictment of us. No wonder Paul, as he quoted several Old Testament passages, comes to that chapter in Romans chapter 3, and he says this, None is righteous, no, not one no one who understands no one seeks god all have turned aside together they become worthless no one does good not even one their throats are open graves they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asp is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness and their feet are swift to shed blood and their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known their is no fear of God before their eyes. And so in just a few verses later, that's why Paul writes this universal indictment again. For all, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So were you there? Were you there when they beat and blindfolded him? And cursed and mocked Him. Were you there when they mocked and ridiculed Him? Were you there when they tried and condemned our Lord? And the answer is absolutely. The trial of Jesus reveals His absolute innocence. And our universal guilt. But the trial of Jesus reveals something else. It is a prelude to salvation's great exchange. Notice what's going on in this passage. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that at this time of year, it was always a custom to release someone from prison for the people. And so Pilate, according to that custom, offered to release Jesus. But the crowd would have nothing to do with it. Away with this man! Crucify him, give us Barabbas, verse 18. Pilate again, he's insisted three times that Jesus is innocent, but they continue to cry out, crucify Jesus and give us Barabbas. Matthew tells us that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. Luke reminds us he was an insurrectionist, a rebel, and he was in prison for murder as well. And so, what took place here is that Barabbas is released, this felon, this guilty prisoner, and Jesus is condemned. The, the injustice and irony of this is seen even in Barabbas' name. Barabbas' name means son of the father. And what's taking place? This wicked, rebellious son is released, and the only innocent, truly innocent Son of the Father is condemned. What a travesty of blind hatred and injustice. And yet at the same time, what a marvelous display of the grace of God. The righteous is exchanged for the unrighteous. The Savior is condemned in the place of sinners. Peter put it this way of this salvation's great exchange. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Did you hear it? The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. The Savior for sinners. And we see this not only at Jesus' trial. We also see this great exchange at the foot of the cross. That's why we will sing in just a few moments, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, Condemned, he stood. Sealed, my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Paul reminds us of this great exchange. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read these words. For our sakes, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. There it is again. The righteous is exchanged for the unrighteous, the innocent Savior for notorious sinners. There's a wonderful picture of this kind of life and death exchange seen in Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. The story is set in the bloody guillotine days of the French Revolution. And the patriot Charles Darnay has been condemned to die, but the Englishman Sidney Carton has a plan to spare his life. Carton and Darnay look very similar. And so on the day of Darnay's execution, Carton visits him in his prison cell. And there they exchange clothes and they exchange places. Carton will go to the guillotine on behalf of Darnay. And so he's taken to the public execution. Carton meets a young innocent seamstress who had met Darnay earlier, and so she knew immediately that Carton was an imposter. But she also suspected immediately of what he was up to. Are you dying for him? She asked. You see, Carton's substitution and his sacrifice for Darnay reminded her of Christ and gave her courage to face her own execution on their way to the gallows, on their way to the guillotine, she took Carton's hand and she said this, I've been able to raise my eyes to Him who died for us. And that grants me great hope and comfort. My friend, salvation's great exchange is our only hope in comfort, in this life and the life to come. The Scriptures teach that we were the notorious prisoners of sin, willing prisoners of our own sin, and that Jesus was the innocent Son of God, that we were worthy to be condemned, and the good news of the gospel is this great exchange. That Jesus has been condemned in the place of those who repent of their sin, who turn from their own self-righteousness, and who embrace Him freely, the only innocent Son of God, who embrace Him freely by grace through faith. And salvation's great exchange as we trust Him and rely upon Christ alone not only gives us comfort and hope and courage to face our own death, but grants us grace To live, to live joyfully and fully and in response to the grace and mercy of Him who died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. My prayer is that on the day of final judgment, you will stand with Jesus as the one who took your place. Because if you do not trust Him, you are, quite frankly, on your own. All your sin, thoughts, and motives and actions hid from humanity will be laid bare before this great God, and you will be on your own to face eternal judgment. But the good news is, my friends, for those who trusted in Jesus Christ, we have one who stood in our place and took our punishment upon Him And so we sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. Pray with me, please. Oh, Father, we give you thanks and praise for this great exchange, for the reality that Jesus was willing to be beaten and mocked and ridiculed, to be scoffed and to be crucified in our place. We, Father, we thank you that your sovereign design and your amazing grace have devised such a plan of salvation salvation's great exchange where jesus has stood in our place and so to him belongs the honor to him alone belongs the praise and to him alone belongs the glory may he receive it in our worship and in our lives throughout this week we pray in jesus name amen